Hey everyone, this is Mike from You'll Probably Agree. Today I talked to Don Shanahan from Every Movie Has a Lesson via Skype about him being one of the four negative reviews on Toy Story 4 and how everyone was extremely kind and compassionate and understanding regarding his opinion. Of course, I'm just kidding. It was an absolute shit show in his comments section. And we're here to talk about how he is really a legitimate critic. Don is one of the nicest guys I've ever known. And really, he's been kind of like a mentor to me on my journey towards being a critic. He's been nothing but supportive. So I want you guys to listen to this and to really get how Don was really is really not one of those guys who just wanted to trash a movie just so then he could generate more clicks. So when we get into a little bit of the story of that and why he didn't like Toy Story 4 and why I did and how we came to a respectful understanding of each other's uh, opinions on the film, we talk a little bit, or actually I should say a lot a bit, about 1989's Batman and how well it holds up today. Uh, I can't wait for you guys to hear this one because like, this is a movie I wanted to talk about for so long. I watch it so many times. It's a staple, I think, of my childhood and so many other people's childhood. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, I even talk about this dream Batman movie I always had that would be starring Michael Keaton. And yes, this would be a new Batman film made today starring Michael Keaton that I've always wanted to make. But I'm just going to tell you that much. So wait till you get to the end of the episode and uh, hear a little bit about my Batman movie idea. Tell me if that's something that we should green light or not, because, oh my God, it would be amazing. <laughs> All right. Having said that, I'm going to fire up the episode now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to You'll Probably Agree. I am in the back bar right now with uh, Don Shanahan, uh, writer of Every Movie Has a Lesson. And uh, from what I understand, Don, uh, I, I could see that you had a pretty interesting week last week. Uh, something about Toy Story? Uh, <laughs> yeah, boy, I sure ran into something, didn't I? Uh, so, uh, for, I, I guess, uh, for our audience, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, I guess I'll, uh, le- uh, have you explain a little bit about, uh, what happened. Sure, you bet. So, um, I, um, I was, I went to the press screening, saw the film, wrestled with it, I uh, had it, you know, just, I, I asked myself whether this was really, uh, you know, worthwhile, was it effective or ineffective? Um, I'm not a hater. I'm not the kind of guy that really goes out and really, you know, uh, snarks his way through a review and all that. Um, when I kind of added my pieces up, I slept in the movie review um, and all that. I, I, can't, I came to a place where I gave it a two star out of five review. Uh, I submitted that to Rotten Tomatoes because I'm a Rotten Tomatoes approved critic. And uh, it was ended up being one of the first two negative reviews the film had that knocked it down from its 100% perfect rating of whatever customer service satisfaction that has to be and uh i definitely got some shit for it um the uh i think i'm up to about 55 comments on the review most of them are in the douche nozzle you look like the tip of my penis and kill yourself and rape your family variety where it's good to know that the uh, internet is alive and well with the usual haters and and trolls so um definitely an 
interesting experience to kind of have that be uh, the reason I get attention in any kind of way. And uh, don't get me wrong, I'm laughing all the way to the bank in terms of web traffic and all that. But uh, at the same time, um, I didn't do it really for attention. I just uh, wanted to be honest with the film that I saw and, and the review that I had in mind and, and write about it in a good, honest, and reflective way. But I, I think nine, uh, something tells me between the hours of when I posted it on Tuesday to, to Thursday before the film opened, I bet 90% of the people commenting didn't even see the movie. before. They just kind of you know, came in and chimed in and tried to kind of bash in on something they felt was different or negative or contrarian and all that. And uh, I, I have definitely gotten a slowdown on comments since. In fact, I've gotten a lot of support from fellow critics and a couple of people are like, yeah, you know what? You know, you, you're not all that far off from where I'm at. I, I see your points. You're not really trying to do anything negative. And, uh, you know, I respect your review. So it's been a, been a whirlwind fun experience to kind of be internet notorious for a while. Wow. So, uh, I, I would, I just want to tell the audience first that Don is like the nicest guy that I know in the world. He's <laughs> been nothing but supportive of me in my journey towards, uh, becoming a critic and uh, this vitriol that you've received is, first of all, just ridiculous. I mean, yeah. the, but the internet is kind of an environment for that. And I, I think that, like, you are not the kind of critic who's going to go around and try to be contrarian just to generate clicks. No, and, I sure wasn't. No. So immediately when I heard that the movie didn't resonate with you and you didn't like it, I'm like, He's probably got good reasons, you know, and yeah. certainly after I saw it, although I liked it quite a bit because I watched like all three of them in a row and then I saw the fourth one. It kind mm-hmm. of gave me a real fresh take on what they were doing. Yeah. But at the same time, there were there was definitely some things when I thought about the movie a little later on where I'm like, "Ooh, man, this like some of some of this movie was unnecessarily depressing um, sure <laughs> and uh you know but but the fact that i first off i'm surprised you actually read the comments because i know i know i did but it's like you can't help it as someone who oh, is yeah. on is on i haven't had uh anything quite as bad as people threatening to hurt me or people i know but right. you know uh i've you know, throughout the years, people have, you know, said everything about me. Like, you know, I, I look like I have dick hair on my face. You know, mm-hmm, I, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is kind of funny, I do. Uh, uh-huh. uh, and, uh, you know, just people kind of like, I, I kind of knew, like, as a fact that I was overweight when basically you get like five strangers online pretty much telling you that, you know. <laughs> so, oh, I know. Yeah, I mean, I I had a feeling some of this was possible. Um, you know, it's I didn't want to be the one guy to knock it down out of a hundred, but I, uh, you know, but um, I, I there's a lot of it I didn't expect. I expected, you know, some haters and some contrarians and some of the snark to kind of be like, oh, you're just trying to get attention and all that. But yeah, the the ones that get a little more violent and personal over a movie, it's yeah, I I I I see it. I don't absorb it. Um, I move on. I I, I know I. 
like, like, you know, I'm confident in myself and my work where I know I'm not really out, out there to snipe or kill anything. So uh, here's the fun thing, you know, as much as I give the film a, a, a quote unquote rotten review, um, which to me isn't all that really like a rotten or a hateful thing. It's just ineffective and, and not worthwhile for me. I still think it's the kind of movie people need to see, you know, um, if you're it's not just as a Toy Story completist, but uh, to be able to kind of soak up and try this journey of what it is, because uh, I do hear from other critics and I've read other people's work since, including yours and, and seen some stuff where you know the positives are, are are definitely worthwhile in there if they if they if they grab it if you as the reviewer gravitate to those and if you find value in them and uh by no means is the movie worthless by no means is the movie pointless and all that it's just I, you know the word i kept centering on was worthwhile yeah yeah so what you were know, the positive what were the positives for you what would you love about the movie okay so what i loved about it is every it this one took a very and very appropriately a very different approach yeah which was you know right at the start of the film you know this is it's not light and happy we start with a rain-soaked floor everything's dreary kind of like a little bit like a horror movie and it starts with a flashback and it you know like if you see every other toy story film it either started with uh a non-fantasy where Andy's playing with the toys or fantasy where you're in the toys world, whether it's Buzz Lightyear right. or Andy's world. And here I'm like, oh, I hope they don't do that same thing. And immediately the, the movie said right off the bat, no, we're not making the same movie. You've seen Toy Story 1 through 3. So, you know, this is going to be a little different. And I think that was kind of the problem that a lot of folks understandably had with the film, which mm-hmm. was this one felt very different from the first three. You know, this one was uh, very much an epilogue and where, you know, the main focus is on the world of the toys, not so much the humans. You know, it's still about ownership. It's still about abandonment. It still has those extremely mature existential themes placed within Mm -hmm. this kid's film. But it takes them to a direction where it, it you feel like you're watching something fresh and new. And sure, it plays a lot of the same themes where people are being saved at the last second and the toys are doing these incredible, you know, gymnastic maneuvers around oh, yeah. the environment that uh, they're inside. But at the end of the day, you know, what, what really won me over was how bold – the ending was which yeah. i really want to spoil but i don't know I'll, I'll wait for the russo brothers to give me permission to spoil it. <laughs> right right um, right uh, no, but me, i'm with no, you on those i'm with you on those positives you know it, it is a different tone uh and i can appreciate that the the part for me with the tone where um if this was i was saying this to some other buddies of mine where um i said if this was toy story 2.5 this would be really worth it. Like if this was a, a dramatic turn in a mature direction before you have a great send off and an ending to cap things, yeah. this would fit pretty good. You know, like for me, the hard part of, of going, of taking this turn, not that it's not an unfeasible turn, not that it's, you know, not worthwhile and not that it's not really compelling for Woody and all that, but to, to have this be the thing that follows what was an absolutely perfect ending of three. Like I, I asked myself, like, yeah. is this, is is coming back to do this turn is coming back to do this different you know adventure or or minor little nuance thing is this worth unlocking and breaking the permanence that you had with 
with Toy Story 3, and I, so that's where I'm like at a sequel. I, I look before it, I look after it, and I go, I, it just feels like the wrong place and the wrong time to pull this off. Or if you're going to do this and go on for three more movies or something like that, okay, but man, to, to have this be the thing that follows three, that was the hard part for me, whereas I, it, it, as much as it's different and I could appreciate that, it just didn't fit in my eyes. Yeah. I think that's a really good point, too, because it, it just feels like this very – like the other side – there's that other side of my brain that's kind of saying this feels like a very unnecessary depressing monologue or yeah. epilogue, I should say. And uh, I guess I, I'm going to go – so at 9.56, audience, we're going to get into spoilers here. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Yeah. So the thing was is – the whole point of the Toy Story saga was that Woody was afraid, or actually Toy Story 2 on, that Woody was afraid of being left by Andy. You know, right. being left by an owner, not having someone to play with him, because that's the whole point of their existence. Mm-hmm. And by Toy Story 3, we finally get this big relieving, oh, thank God, he has a new home everything's going to be okay kind of moment. Yeah. And then in Toy Story 4, it just seemed maybe a really out of character for Woody to say goodbye to all the toys. I'm going to actually face my fear and be a lost toy so I can live a life of freedom. Because I agree. Bonnie, who you know was this huge emotional deal in Toy Story 3, just kind of throws him in the closet like he's no big deal. Mm-hmm. And... To me, I'm just thinking, wait a minute. Are you telling me, like, now that we, we've had, like, these nine years of closure, we find out that Bonnie just kind of throws Woody away like a piece of trash? Like, in right. a way, it is kind of like horseshoot in, like, those uh, new Star Wars sequels where you're like, wait a minute, we defeated the Empire. Why are we going here now? Right, right, so, right. So, not for that, me, the, the, for me, the tricky part is um, – you know, we, the audience, and even the viewers who were kids then who are now nine years older and probably teens now, we've all had that closure. But in the movie, it's been, what, two, three years where Bonnie went from being a toddler to a kindergartner? Yeah. And, you know, in, in that amount of time, we go from, you know, toys who who are inseparable, who are holding hands close to fiery death, yeah. all, of a sudden get, all of a sudden get to this point of, well... You know, maybe I should try something else. You know, like retire and join, you know, uh, the and, circus. Enjoy, <laughs> yeah, enjoy the circus. Join some missionary or like what some other kind of you know post empty nest kind of work. You know, and I it was just it was such an odd turn and an odd place to put it after you had such definitive closure. I, I mean, on its own, like if like I said, if this was more two point five, like if if Woody had this time away and then got to a point where he's like you know what this has been great i've been really helpful and all that but i need to go back to where i belong i need to go back to my friends and then we get this toy story 3 you know come back to andy closure and you know the reminiscing of a toy he thought he lost and all that and he sees his value like man it would fit a heck of a lot better there than it does here unless and then the hard part is also you know you have a lot of characters that are kind of just on the sidelines like there's not a lot of buzz in this movie and he's such a linchpin piece to what they do and i get that you're not going to have mr mrs potato head because don rickles has passed away and you know and and i know bo peep is tricky because you know she was very much an afterthought before all of a sudden has been thrust into this main character and then 
and all the new stuff is really just, you know, kind of comic relief where that no one's really all that. I mean, Bo Peep is there and all that, but no one after that's really that deep or goes that much further or furthers things along where, you know, the way Ken did in, in Toy Story 3 where he's an integral part of where those toys are growing and going, where Forky feels like just a MacGuffin to move action along. Mm, that's very true. Uh, but Well, there was that one uh, toy. I can't remember the name of her at the top of my head, but she had the missing voice box. Oh, yeah, Gabby Gabby. Gabby she, Gabby, yeah. Now, she Gabby, feels like a forced villain, though, you know, like no, uh, not that far away from loving, loving, lots of loving or whatever from lots of from from Toy Story three. Yeah, I, I Close think to that. I think though the the difference between like Lotso or the Prospector and Gabby Gabby is that Gabby Gabby actually did have an element where she wasn't just a bad guy and you actually empathized yeah. with her. And That's true. They did give her an arc where. You know, Woody kind of like this is where the movie gets incredibly depressing. Where it's like, yes. not only does Woody uh, give up sort of this this sort of slave like mentality of what it is to be a toy, mm-hmm. but he also uh, he literally gives up his voice box. He's sewn yeah. in the back. He's lost and broken. Like, I'm just thinking, God, that Woody's going to have a really ugly divorce with Bo Peep. He's just <laughs> right. going to turn to him and be like, you fucked up my life, you know, and his body could have still had me. And now look at me. I'm living in a filth and a fake fucking squirrel driving around this fucking circus. Right. Oh, you know? <laughs> I, know. I, I wonder, I wonder, that's the thing. I wonder the longevity of this character turn. Like, it's a nice moment. I love, I love the gesture. I love the mission of, of like helping other toys. But, you know, there's even a level where like these toys really aren't going to be won by the carnival. Carnival toys get won all the time. Like, is he, like, is he really helping anything of super duper need, you know? And again, if that's, is that super duper necessary following a really good part three? So, yeah, I, th- those are my troubles there a little bit. Um, performance wise and all that, you know, obviously Keanu Reeves is a blast uh, yeah. for his fun little, you know, extended cameo part. Tom Hanks, of course, can sell that emotion as Woody the whole time. Um, you know, it's nice to see Annie Potts get a nice big part. It's been a long time since a legit Ghostbusters movie for her to come yeah. back as Bo Peep and have a real good voice part there. And uh, no, and then, yeah, all the technical part. I mean, the photorealistic and animation all that's really tip top um i've never been a super lover of randy newman's songs and music i think they're kind of mopey and folksy and i know mopey and folksy fits here but you know at some point even that can mature in a different direction but uh no i I just yeah it it was just hard to find a lot of it ineffective i think you get repetitive with um you know that like you said like you were saying before you get repetitive with the the adventure the i have to get back home stuff you have the the finding dory ending of uh you know of creatures or sentient things taking over a human vehicle and driving you know because that's what andy stanton does in the writer's room that's all they got for a polish at the end because, you know, eight eight writers had the story credit of this idea here, and they've all kind of been cast to the wind. Some of them left for philosophical differences. John Lasseter's not yeah. even with the company anymore. So it felt like a movie that had eight ideas that they couldn't figure out one good through thread with other than just leaning on Woody. Right. Yeah, I mean, I feel a little differently with it. I feel like that, that there actually was a good central focus where you don't know what's going on until that third act and yeah forky could be seen sort of like as a mcguffin but i did enjoy his existential crisis relating to his existence and our existence but you know at the end it, it, you know that i i feel like the the argument i uh made in my review for toy story 4 is 
uh, is Toy Story 4 as good as Toy Story 3? And the answer is, of course not. Because yeah. Toy Story 3 is a rare masterpiece mm-hmm. in animated filmmaking and just writing in general the, whose emotion will resonate with us forever. Uh, yeah. So, you know, take those expectations aside and you see Toy Story 4. It's it's surprisingly, first off, it actually serves a purpose within the uh, overall story of Toy Story where, you know, it actually does feel like this ending for Woody where we always say, well, what's going to happen to him, you know, when when Bonnie doesn't want him anymore or any child? And in the end, we mm-hmm. always realize a conflict within him, which was he had someone who was faithful to him, but he never could accept the fate that a toy has. And he matured beyond everyone else where yeah. he had to learn that he doesn't have to be part of a system you know, where you're played with someone, but you could be your own individual and you could see the world. And although the the rest of the cast was kind of cast aside, it felt like, Mm -hmm. well, we kind of told their whole story. Like, they they ended there. So now we're going to focus on Woody and these new characters who work surprisingly well. And Gabby Gabby was surprisingly layered, too. Uh, It had had an arc. I'll tip the head to that, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, having said that, yeah, I mean, it felt like this, it still could have been, you certainly have some, uh, very good points where it, it, you know, this stuff, like, although it is good as maybe a standalone film, you know, mm-hmm. as part of this entire story, it, it, it sort of almost feels like a cruel ending yeah. <laughs> to send well, I, Woody off on. Do you feel like they need... Well, it needs a strong word because, I mean, sometimes when you talk about need, we're talking about cash grabs. Sometimes we're talking about story fulfillment and character fulfillment. Is a Toy Story 5 needed at this point to kind of take this further or finish another piece? Or, you know, is this... I mean, is this a new ending acceptable or does is more even needed? Well, you see, uh, the, the, I think it was a head at Pixar. He said something about, you know, we treat every film... Like it's the last film, but if yeah. there's a story there, we will make that film. And right. the thing is, like, when he says that, although Tom Hanks says, "Oh, it's my last Toy Story" and all that, you know, the fact of the matter is, they'll probably make another one. You know, yeah, I'm thinking that too. You and know, it is time open will pass, enough. The story will come. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, and, like, and if I, they do, let's let's. I'll if they do, I'll 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 be where you're at. I'll, I'll accept some layers. I'll try to shed a few expectations and uh, and just let it go and see where things can flow. But uh, yeah, if they put, you know, they're not going to pull one out in two years or nothing like that. But uh, I I yeah. think they've opened a door. Let's see if they can keep tiptoeing through it. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I think. I mean, having said that, we'll, we'll see what happens. They certainly left it open. Like a lot of people are saying, "Oh, this Very is a, so. this is a, this is an ending. This is true closure." Like, no, no not at is, all. This is not. Yeah, not at all. Like, I think yeah. within within a, a month or so, Woody's going to say, "Why did I do this?" <laughs> right. Like, like this I, is a, I fell in yeah, love. Like I a fell for away. an old girl, and now, now that now that that kind of romance is over. Mm-hmm. And I kind of had my own sort of midlife crisis. I, you know, I got to go yeah. back to my family. I, that was what it felt like. Woody betrayed his family in a way. A little, a little bit. You know, I'm, it makes me wonder. You know, he, yeah. it was a, it was a selfish choice. I get that it was a inspired choice, but it feels 
a little selfish enough, like I said, two years removed from holding hands to fiery death. Like it just, it was, yeah. it was a curveball that I, like I said, I admire. I'll, I'll tip my hat to the balls. I just can't call it that. It, I don't know if it works all that great. So we'll see yeah. what they do. But you see, folks, people can have a different opinion than yours. And they're still valid, and you don't have to be a dick online. No you know? kidding, man. Jeez, you know, oh my people God. are allowed, man. Yeah, and, you know, uh, hats off to you for, for uh, you know, biting the bullet and uh, being one of two. I mean, now there's more than two critics on Rotten Tomatoes. It's like Tomatoes, four, so, but uh, yeah. it's still a pretty small company, that's for sure. Yeah, like how have your critics friends been about? It? They've been supportive throughout it. Uh, yeah, not bad. I was um, I did uh, I I, I guessed it on Ian Simmons' uh, Kicking the Seat podcast, and uh, I noticed that. He, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he he was he was equally on the fence about it as I was. He would give it a he would give it a low review, same place as me. Um, David Foley on that show was kind of like you know, uh, he sees that it's kind of redundant, not really necessary, but still sees the positive in it. He's very middle of the road, and then Emmanuel Noisette was like you know trying to kind of give me an intervention where he's like. Like, you know, Don, if you if you just go back and watch it or if you take your kids and see it, you know, maybe you could raise that score up a little bit, and not put yourself on such an island. And I'm like, well, gosh, I can't go back on it now. And and I did sleep on it enough and reflect on it enough and research on it enough where I, I'm pretty comfortable with this rating. You know, it, if I ever change something, it would take years to do it. So I'm sticking yeah, with well, it. Well, it's, it's weird when, you, when they say take your kids to it because – I, I think those movies connect with us so much more when we're adults than when we're I agree. children. Because we I, grow honestly, up with those I, yeah. things. I, and I have two kids. I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, my six-year-old girl is uh, kind of a little more tenuous and afraid with anxiety and things. I can't really take her to see this movie. She'd be too creeped out by it. And, and I think every heavy <laughs> thing. The whole Shining think, reference. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I also think um, I also think all the uh, the heady themes would just really be over a six-year-old's head, let alone my four-year-old yeah. son. My four-year-old son sees the McDonald's toy of Duke Kaboom and thinks it's cool, which is awesome, you know. But he's not going to get the rest of it at all. And Neither one my six-year-old, so it will take time. I think in adulthood, this is something you could pass to people and be just fine with. But I don't know. It, it, it is a little weird for their target audience to get anything out of it. But, you know, it's going to make a zillion dollars, and that's all right. And that's that's what they expected, and that's what they wanted. So I'm, I'm yeah. at peace with it. Wait, so McDonald's is selling a Duke of Boom toy? I got to go to McDonald's. Oh, I know. <laughs> There's a, there, there is a 10-part set that can build the whole RV for you, and Duke of Boom is one of them. Oh, my God, saying. I got to go. I remember when Burger King had all those toys. And right. The, the toy I had of Woody from Burger King, uh, now my uh, now my uh, uh, my nephew has it. There you loves go. Awesome. It. Yeah. Just like passing up. Uh, anyways, I could go on. I, I already talked about all that but no uh so uh i guess that's all we have to say about toy story 4 um but uh having said that uh when we here yeah Yeah, what's up you lead it in sorry Oh, no, uh, when we uh come back uh we're gonna talk a little bit about uh 1989's batman 30 years later my god i know man we're old yeah god I was I was I was like five years old when that was out. I think I, I was a healthy ten, but even still, yeah. Anyways, uh, when we come back, uh, it'll be 1989 Batman. Wing freak terrorizes. Wait till they get a load of me. Okay. 
Okay, guys, welcome to part two of this episode. We talked about Toy Story 4, but now we're going to talk about something very different. Something that's a little darker, although not as existentially dark as Toy Story, surprisingly. <laughs> right, sentient toys that have life when squished together. I know, this is this should be tame. That's not a spoiler. Yeah. Batman is 30 years old, <laughs> and... It's funny, when I look at Batman now, that movie was actually the film that got me into filmmaking. It's I one believe of, it. Yeah, it's one of my earliest uh, memories of a film. And I remember as a kid, I would actually have uh, a, the uh, cassette tape of uh, the uh, score from Danny Elfman. And whenever mm-hmm. they play that one song when the Batmobile is driving through the woods. Oh, and, yes. Yeah, uh, I close my eyes and I kind of picture my own version of the Phantom of the Opera, you know, where the yes. Phantom's uh, going on the boat and he's taking Christine into his chamber. Yeah. Um, and it, just from there, I was conceiving movies. And it's funny when I thought of that, because as I was watching all the behind-the-scenes material for Batman on my mm-hmm. 20th anniversary DVD. I, I had the same one, yeah. Good good. Yeah, set. Yeah, the, uh, the Shadows of the Bat uh, documentary is amazing. Mm-hmm. I've watched it multiple times. Uh, there was actually a thing, and I think this was actually uh, in the IMD trivia. No, it actually wasn't a documentary where... Jack Nicholson and producer John Peters watched the Phantom of the Opera, and they were inspired by the ending where the Phantom brings Christine up to the tower. Yep, which is where they actually uh, kind of came up with the ending for Batman, where they're going up in the tower. Although when it, they were, it on, works well. Yeah, so it's funny how even as like a six-year-old kid, I. You know, I was thinking of the same thing that Jack Nicholson and the produce and one of the producers of the film was uh, thinking. But I, lo- I love it, man. No, I'm with you. Uh, that Danny Elfman score is probably the thing that that sticks the longest. I mean, obviously, watching the movie and remembering the imagery is one thing, but man, that music. You know, um, short of John Williams' score from Superman as a kid, you hear that music and you just get hyped. You know, it's just so operatic and big and different than any other score of that era where, you know, movies at that time were, you know, half electronic and, and stuff like Top Gun or Predator. And, you know, there were there wasn't a lot of like proper big brassy scores. And here comes this thing that was just had all the the spectacle, all the size, all the power and and, and from a guy who was, you know, reasonably inexperienced with film music, as Elfman was, was just perfect, man. I, it's, yeah, he just came from, yeah. like, a band or something. Oh, I know, from Oingo Boingo, just as an 80s guy. And obviously his collaborations with Burton are, are always there. But, uh, you know, just um, the way we talk about, you know, um, the Nine Inch Nails guys doing scores now for Fincher, it feels like it was that kind of moment <laughs> then where a, a new guy comes in and just blows everybody away. And, I, you know, I, I, I close my eyes and I picture Batman, and, I, and I'm that Seth Rogen character from Neighbors where, you know, Michael Keaton and this movie is my Batman. You know, Christian Bale and all those movies yeah. are fun and all that, but when I close my eyes and I picture Batman, it's Elfman's music that comes on. It's it's Keaton's stature in space and it's Nicholson and that smile, man. It is it, you know, a formative classic for me, you know, um, it'll, I, I can acknowledge that there are parts of like the Dark Knight and, and Nolan's work since that are probably better, but this movie will always be just a favorite, just an absolute downright pick it up anytime and love it favorite because of just its 
all of it, the spectacle, the size, the, the performances, it, it's, it's such a blast. I, it, I, I can't believe it's 30 years old. Yeah, it, it holds up surprisingly well. And, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and it really created the foundation beyond Superman for how super move, hero movies were going to be made because yeah. you know, Superman, it created a layered uh, depiction of a superhero where you get to know the backstory, you get to know who he is, but... It superhero movies were always kind of you know happy 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 fun, and then Batman comes along, and it was inspired and uh, the uh, producer of the film, uh, Michael E. Uslan, uh, yeah. executive producer actually, he wanted to take Batman back to its dark roots, you know, back to the creature of the night, and and they took a lot of inspiration from Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. Right. And here, Batman was dark, he was moody, and it was a film where, you know, in its production design uh, from, oh, Anton, so from good. Anton First through Roger Pratt's cinematography... Uh, mm-hmm. It's just the style, just the gothic, uh, stylish nature of it, just through Tim Burton's eye, you know, fit that character perfectly. And it was a case where Tim Burton wasn't necessarily a huge fan of, you know, the final product because, you know, it wasn't an, an entirely a Tim Burton film. But I right. think that was a good thing because. In having some restraint in Tim Burton, we didn't get something like Batman Returns, which in its own merits is actually a surprisingly good picture. But also, it's a little too out there for the source material. Yeah, I agree. You know, um, yeah. there, there. I, I'm, I'm, I am glad that there was kind of studio control here to kind of keep the polish up and keep the weirdness down. But, but enough darkness and character really sinks in, like you said, between production design and costumes and tone. And, and like you said, being the anti-Superman movie, where it, I mean, the origin story is woven throughout. We meet an established, existing Batman. No, no, you know, no ninety minutes of not revealing the character until the end, kind of thing. Like this is a one hundred percent Batman movie, and that. That at his time to reintroduce the character was was so appreciated because I was that kid who um, I'm not old enough to know it first time, but I got the reruns like most kids where my Batman, you know, as a kid was was Adam West, you know, and yes. and, and, and bright and fun and silly and cartoon stuff to it follow. Was a big where, mockery of Batman, yeah. Oh yeah, you know, and I you know catching those reruns on television was fun, and that was definitely my introduction to the character. But then as a ten year old kid to watch this one, you what a tonal shift and, and what a age for that movie. oh yeah and it, and it hit me like a ton of bricks from like wow that that's batman more than any cartoonish thing i saw in the past and for them to follow it with you know the cartoon series which which was dark but still approachable with kid stuff and and then i don't mind batman returns one bit because it does take the weird start and go further and it's a great little like odd little non-traditional christmas movie at the same time and, and just uh, <laughs> it is. You know, they kind of you know in a diehard way they kind of go balls out with just kind of playing with those themes and michelle pfeiffer's awesome and all that but it, it had to get its start here and it, it just it looked it I've never seen a ten, as a ten year old kid a movie look like this, you know, because you look at those old kind of standard, you know, big event films of the seventies or eighties uh, before it. Nothing really reached this level in terms of uh, of scope and, like you said, the the, the matte paintings and and the, the you know the the size and level of the of the 
intricacy of this film. And then you have Nicholson just holding court all movie. It's just, it can't take your eyes off a villain. And uh, yeah, I, I, I know they've, uh, they've gone the origin story stuff since with no one. But like I said, if, if you ask me to pick one Batman movie to be the one you watch forever, to be the one that defines what it really is and nail the character, it's this one, you know, the dark Knight's mm. cute and all. And, and Heath Ledger is really something. But if you want all of it, the comic book level fun, the style the, the the panache you go here you know it's yeah. so good yeah um i'd say dark knight is my favorite as a batman fan but i gotta sure. say that uh man, the batman was the one though that solidified superheroes as something more than this you know fun you know image of of superhero movies that we always get and, uh, you know, it doesn't overdo it, you know? It doesn't, no, like, Zack Snyder it, where Superman yeah. just goes on a fucking killing spree, you know? Right. Uh, th- this this was, you know, I think Michael Keaton was the definitive Batman. I mean, just the whole voice that he actually came up with was mm-hmm. Keaton's idea. Because Keaton said, well, people are going to be, it's going to be very obvious that Bruce Wayne is Batman the moment he opens up his mouth. So that's where he kind of came up with this lower tone that now yeah. every on-screen actor has followed since Keaton, which is right. funny because, you know, when Michael Keaton was originally announced, you know, people were out with their pitchforks ready to get him. The front page of the Wall Street Journal actually oh, had an article, and it's available online. You can find it. There, They had an article talking about what was wrong with them and why they were, you know, why were they casting Michael Keaton so of course they had to release that first trailer to yeah. kind of ease everyone's expectations and when that first trailer dropped they they released it like in this uh, somewhere in California uh probably like you know somewhere in Hollywood and people were giving standing ovations when they oh, saw yeah. it and that trailer like at every comic book convention back in 1989 mind you you know yeah. when you couldn't get the internet People were were uh, calling theaters just to see the trailer and then leave, like they did with the uh-huh. Phantom Menace. And yeah. then at comic book conventions, people were selling tapes of the trailer for an enormous amount of money. And of mm-hmm. course, the movie came out, and there was so much hype around it. You know, it was Batman pandemonium. I, yeah, I was, it was. Yeah, I was talking. I, re- I remember the marketing end of it the most, and I remember your conversation recently with David Foley, where you guys had a real good show. Where he's older than me, where he remembers more of like the casting backlash and the in the insider stuff. I, I mean, I didn't. Know, I mean. I saw Beetlejuice, but I don't remember Michael Keaton like the way everyone else remember Michael Keaton. I just remember seeing that trailer and just being, whoa, they're doing something big and different. And, and they, it was the, one of those perfect trailers where it just teased you. Just just, uh, just enough. Yeah. You flash that title, you flash that badge, and that's all you need. You know, Don't oversell a thing. And uh, I like the way David remembered... You know, just the, the more the flack and the, and the insider stuff that I didn't, I didn't know for years, you know? Yeah, like, I mean, I didn't know until I was older. Oh, yeah, like, college Michael for Keaton. me. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, like, yeah, like, I found out, like, when I did research, you know, when I was an older kid, when I was in college, yeah, I was like, oh, man, everyone hated Michael Keaton. I think my mom might have told me about it when I was a kid, you know. But, yeah, I mean, back then it was Mr. Mom and all that. And although mm-hmm. he just did Beetlejuice, it was still kind of a comedic role. 
And this, you know, this was Michael Keaton got that role because he has that sort of psychotic look in his eyes where him more than any actor you can believe would don that cowl. I agree. He looks like he's completely uneven, you know, where Christian Bale, he can get a lot of the conflict that Bruce Wayne slash Batman's feeling, but he doesn't have that natural sort of look where you right. could tell that he's crazy. He doesn't uh, have that screw loose at all. Not even close. Yeah. I'm with um, you on that. Yeah, but I mean, that's why I worked on uh, Jack Nicholson, of course. I mean, before Heath Ledger became the definitive Joker, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson, he was the man for the role. I mean, mm-hmm. this, this is Jack Nicholson coming off of The Shining. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he was no... And one flew over to the cuckoo's nest. And yeah. then as a comic book movie, for an actor of his stature to yes. be in a movie like that... You know, back then, it, it, people, the studios didn't find comic book movies that profitable. Sure, no. Superman made a lot of money, but they still didn't think they'd make a lot of, uh, a lot of dough, which... You know, we look at that now and we laugh like, really? Uh, But so I mean, it's sad how they cast it because they used Robin Williams as bait to basically did. Yeah, because they basically uh, told Robin Williams like they offered the role to him. And then they told Jack Nicholson, well, if you don't take this role, Robin Williams will. And then he took it. And then Jack Nicholson ended up thinking, uh, claiming it as one of his favorite performances. And he would watch the movie like once a week. I remember, uh, I remember the research where uh, just the, he got a sweetheart of a deal too. Obviously, top billing. He only had, you know, he had a loose schedule where he had a time off where he'd never missed a Lakers home game. He got a six million dollars salary, which at the time was a, a half the amount of money. I know it was in the twenties that guys made, you know, ten years later or something like that. But uh, then he got a, a percentage of the box office gross, which mm-hmm. estimates have said that he he made sixty to ninety million dollars off of that movie. That's what he loved wow. the most about watching is the royalties, you know, because. He just keeps the cash just dings for him on that one. Yeah, not to mention the merchandising. Oh yeah, which the merchandising played a huge. Those were the first toys. <laughs> when I think about Toy Story, the first toys that I remember as a kid were those 1989 Batman toys. There you and go. When I went yeah. to C2E2, I'm like the first thing I'm gonna try to grab are those toys. You know, uh, and did you find any? I did. None of them were like the action figures I had when I was a kid, which was unfortunate. Yeah. They had one from the video game for the uh, NES, but they were like colored purple and it was weird. It looked like Joel oh, Schumacher okay. personally yeah, spray painted them. Uh, but I did find a Batman cowl. That, there you go. Yeah, it's like really like it's straight up like I could like when you wear it, you could see how Michael Keaton couldn't turn his head, right, right, or how he could you know couldn't you, hear. Uh, I'll do a local shout out for uh, for a good store where you can find some stuff. Uh, look up uh, Real R E E L Art in Berwyn. They got a nice store full of uh, different memorabilia, including some Batman '89 stuff, which is available what? for purchase at the moment. So, I'll, I'll uh, a little shout out to Real Art. I'll send you a link on it after the oh, show. Oh, please do. I'm gonna go down there. Real yeah. Art. For for me, toy wise, I mean, I'm a little older, so like I came in my 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 first toys that I remember, which I still own and my children play with now, are like those uh, Marvel Secret Wars figures from like 1983, and then like the Kenner Superpowers figures from the cartoon show <laughs> that where you squeeze the legs and all that goes. But yeah, you're right. When when Batman went black and went bigger, you know, it it was yeah. just so darn cool, you know. Yeah, yeah. man. 
I mean, Tim Burton didn't want the underwear outside of Batman. Like he did no, it was perfect, it too. Look, yeah. It looked great. Yeah, I mean, crotchless superheroes look great. Uh, because, I mean, I look at, uh, I mean, look at, as much as I hated Man of Steel, I did lo- yeah. I did love the suit that they made. The suit did like, look good, man. Yeah. yeah. Which, um, um, now, how, uh, the other thing for me about this, like you said, the scene that gets you going in the soundtrack, how about that car? Wasn't that that is the, the sexiest car I've ever seen in my oh, life. Now the that, curves, man. Ah, oh, so good. Yeah. That, now that 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 car, it was part bat. It was part like bat, and then yeah. pat, part sports car because you know they they crafted it off of different parts of different cars. And right. I read a little bit about it, but I don't know nothing about cars. I'm mad that that horrible, <laughs> racist, unfunny comic Jeff Dunham owns it. Now. Oh, I know. Yeah, that that like gets me just oh god, is there a way I could just steal this car? I mean, when they actually <laughs> filmed that scene in the woods, that car was going 80 miles per hour. And right, they like man. Mm-hmm. and just like that one shot where they they pan across with it, dude, just the timing of that shot. And someone who, who oh, does camera, like, man, that guy was on his mark. <laughs> uh-huh. No, you know? I'm with you. I'll take that car to the tumbler from Nolan's film every, any day of the week and twice on Sundays. Yeah. Like you said, just so sexy. And then for the for the kid in me, it still had the flame in the back, like the 60s one, because it just turns yeah. on that flame that first time. You're like, oh, that was my fan service. And even the, the tumbler had that. Even the tumbler oh, yeah. copied that from 89. Everything copied it from the, the animated series. Shirley Walker's yep. opening score had mm-hmm. Danny Elfman's help. The, the, the dark tone of it, all of it, you know, it, it was all from 89. And yeah, it, and that that's the thing for me. Like, we wouldn't be here with the respect for this character, for the popularity of this character, and the new incarnations that have improved upon it since without this. This is such a watershed place where if we don't have this, we don't have a lot of things today. And I, I tip my hat completely to this movie for it. Yeah. What's your earliest memory of Batman, like, uh, growing up? I remember, like, uh, well, I mean, my earliest memory of, like, this movie itself, um, I was, uh, I grew up uh, south, of the, south of the city in uh, Piatone, Illinois. Shout out to Piatone. It's about uh, 45 miles south of the city. And the closest movie theater for me was the uh, the Paramount in Kankakee, Illinois. It's one of the, uh, it's currently one of the films that's in the classic cinemas family of theaters, kind of like the Lake Street, Lake Theater in Oak Park and the Elk Grove Theater and some of those places like that that are still in Chicagoland and still owned by them and i remember seeing it um they have one of those i don't know if you've been to the tivoli in downers grove but it's one of those uh, a lot like the music box it's one of those uh antique uh kind of playhouse looking screens with the you know the big wide curtain the old boxes the the no stadium seating seats and that movie was playing on screen one in that big theater and it was one of those it's just the biggest theater in my life that i went to seeing before imax and stuff like that and just the movie just filled your head and your ears and your eyes with all of that big imagery and uh, yeah i i remember seeing it in the theater probably i probably scared the crap out of my parents because they probably expected it to be something light and, and adam westy and here it comes yeah this dark <laughs> thing, you know and yeah. But uh, but two years later, I was old enough and cool enough to to see like to make it a point like to to see Batman Returns, same thing opening weekend when it was big deal, and also have that movie be a little little too weird and out there for a twelve year old. But uh, with with little know, kids leaving the theater crying, yeah, oh yeah, but, <laughs> like uh, literally they were no, crying, and then and then McDonald's calling Tim Burton up saying, yeah. what's that black stuff coming out of the penguin's mouth? Yeah, <laughs> oh man, but there but uh, in a, as a theater experience, there are just so many wow. moments 
moments, you know, crashing through the glass in the museum when that car yeah. shows up, you know, the bat signal turns on, the bell starts chiming at the end of the movie. All of it is just stand up and cheer stuff. I would love, love, love to see it on the big screen again. I know sometimes the Logan shows it for some of those midnight things. I know Fathom just did a big anniversary series where they put them back and restored on the big screen. I missed it, but I, I got to find a way someday before I die to, to see that just on the big screen one more time. I did see it on the big screen actually at the Music Box Theater about two years ago. Yeah, and was it part of like their uh, the, the like thirty five millimeter stuff and all that? I think so. Um, and I just remember like I I called my brother in law who you can never get him to go to anything. He's very much a hermit, and uh, I got him to finally agree to it, and it's like an experience he can never forget. And uh-huh. It's it because because not like the with the, they had a thirty five print of it and you could tell it was a thirty five print because the, sure. the print was very you know there's a lot of spots and smudges and stuff like that on there but yeah. it didn't matter because no nah. as a kid I saw it in the theater but I don't I don't remember seeing it in the theater because I was so young I remember uh-huh. seeing it on VHS tape where. Sure. Before you even start the movie, they had uh, Bugs Bunny talking about, you know, buy your Warner Brothers neckties. I said neckties. Yeah. And uh, the uh, and and, and all and he's with Daffy Duck and they're selling all the stuff for the VHS tape before the movie even starts. And then they started the movie. And actually, in the home video release, I didn't know this until I did my research, but I guess um, Roger Pratt's cinematography was so dark that a lot of people in the theater were complaining that they couldn't see what was happening on the screen. I can and, I can imagine that. Yeah, it's funny because when I did see the 35 print of it, there were some parts where I'm like, wait, what's that? You know, where I couldn't see it. But it looked, when you really sit in a dark theater watching the film, you really get a sense of that dark moody atmosphere that you cannot get at home and it's phenomenal and the sound yeah is piercing no 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 home speakers can do that movie justice none oh no no when you when you hear that that theme go and and they're going around the curves of the logo that's my favorite opening credit ever in a movie i I usually hate opening credits but yeah Yeah. it's just simple it's just this card made out of concrete like the grid of the city Uh, and and then Mm -hmm. you go to the final reveal oh and you know batman it also did some things in terms of story i don't think it gets enough credit for which is whenever we have a main antagonist a main villain compared to a hero you know this is the movie that created the foundation for how comic book movies get it right because you just have batman and you just have the joker you know and there's not three other players there's not catwoman and penguin there's not very lean story yeah. yeah and I mean the, the thing that makes those movies work up until today like you think about the first few Spider-Man films you know mm-hmm. you had Spider-Man and the Green Goblin then you had Spider-Man and Doc Ock and now even these films with, with all the characters they shoved into Avengers Infinity War and Avengers yeah. Endgame the whole driving force was to get Thanos and that's yeah. all thanks to Nicholson being the main bad guy I agree. in 1989 Batman it's so good. I mean, just and I, 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 I like like we said earlier. Like I like how 
you weave an origin as you go, you know, almost like, um, yeah. I think so, I mean, the template of the blueprint of what Marvel has been doing where, you know, your typical origin story, you don't see a hero for an hour where I love how we, like I said earlier, it's a 100% all the time, always on Batman movie. And it's, it's rare that we get many of those, you know, established, ready to go movies. Now everything feels like it has to be an origin story over and over again. So yeah, yeah I, I, I wish more movies would take this route of, like you said, leaner, sharper meaner and just you know and don't fill it don't don't put five pounds of sugar in a one pound bag you know keep it tight yeah well the great thing is with uh like although i love batman begins and that was the batman film i always wanted the the thing that uh you know and everyone copied batman begins so the origin story stuff definitely uh and that worked for that universe but it did. it did take away the edge in some ways because yeah. uh, bat because the the thing is with Batman you get who Batman is what he is why he's messed up within seconds of seeing him you know yeah you just got two guys who rob someone in an alley and yep. then they're on the roof I love it they're they're talking about this rumor of this guy dressed up like a bat hurting people uh-huh. and then there he is he just comes out from the shadows he extends yeah. his wings like a creature of the night you know and then there's the infamous line i'm batman which right. actually the original line in the screenplay was i am the knight but Ooh, right. Mike, yeah but michael keaton uh turned it to i'm batman which of course everyone now says oh and, and but yeah immediately when he grabs that guy and he's saying don't kill me and then he tells him i batman and then he flies away. Nah, you're awesome. like, yeah, I get it. That's Batman. <laughs> but I, what, one thing that's weird with this film that I think maybe doesn't hold up, but okay. kind of makes sense, and I don't mind it as much, especially since it came out in '89. Is they always made a big deal about superheroes killing people, and yeah, they did. Batman just. He doesn't give a fuck. He goes no. on a tear. <laughs> oh yeah, that whole fact, that whole factory car ride thing, and and obviously the ending with Joker and all that. Oh yeah, there's zero fucks given there, and I'm perfectly fine with that. You know? Yeah, like it was again. Um, Tim Burton and didn't really read the comics. He didn't know much about it, which is why it wasn't as faithful to the lore. But it was faithful enough, thanks to Michael E. Ulysses' sort of uh, production or executive yeah. producing it. And uh, I, I don't know if you've ever heard this story. I know this is kind of a sidetrack, but I just have to talk about this. Uh, or uh, not Ulysses Ulysses, but um, he, Michael Ulysses. He actually uh, he was in the Indiana College of Arts and Sciences, and he had to appear in front of dean of panels and professors. And he taught the first accredited course in comic books in the 1970s. So okay. basically, one of the professors said to Ulysses, all right, you want to make a movie, uh, you want to make a course on funny books. Nobody's going to take you seriously. Nobody's going to actually, like, you don't care about this. You can't convince mm-hmm. me that this is serious material. And then uh, Ulysses uh, said to this dean, uh... Are are you aware of Batman? He goes, yeah, sure, I know Batman. I've, uh, not Batman. I'm sorry, Superman. Are you aware of the story of Superman? He goes, yeah, I know Superman. I've collected the comics since I was a kid. He's like, okay, uh, great. Um, 
do you know the story of Moses? And he's like, sure. He's like, could you tell me the story? He goes, yeah, sure. It's about a Hebrew couple. They had a son. Uh, the firstborn were killed. So they sent out their uh, infant son in a little wicker basket, sent him down the river to Nile. And then when he mm-hmm. was discovered by an Egyptian family, uh, they raised him as their own. And then he grew up and he became this great hero to his people. And he's like, hey, that's great. Uh, you said you collected Superman comics? I sure did. Could you tell me the story of Superman? He goes, sure. Uh, Krypton was being destroyed. Two parents who are scientists take their son. Uh, and they put him in a little rocket ship when he's found by a farm couple in Kansas on Earth. And they raise him as one of their own. And then he just stops and he goes, your course is accredited. And from yeah. there, we realize comic books can actually be a serious form of storytelling, of art. I'm right, yeah, I'm right there and, with you. I mean, that's what I grew up on in terms of, like, being a kid with literacy. Like, I didn't pick up Hardy Boys books or Agatha Christie novels or or really go to the library for, like, big, hardcore chapter book things. I grew up reading comic books. And, I, you know, yeah. it hit me. It hit me, like, with these DC things here in the lo- early 80s when I was 10 years old and all that as a Superman kid. And then I got to that 90s heyday of – uh, of the X-Men and all the, the the great 90s run they had with Jim Lee and all that and that and and the social and civil issues they had there and absolutely the compelling storytelling is completely possible through kids through the lens of something that people find kiddy. I'm right there with you with that. Completely true. Yeah. And th- that was the great thing is now with with Batman and everything preceding it and with Nolan taking it further kind of taking on more of the psychological implications of what it is to be Batman. Sure. Uh you know, we see that comic book movies can resonate and they can uh, get into some deeper themes. And Absolutely. Although Batman was kind of lighter, there was always an element of darkness there. And I think that's one thing I liked about Returns maybe a little more, not as a movie, but just an element of it that I liked about Batman yeah. Returns more than Batman, which is, you know, Tim Burton found a lot of himself and the antagonists in that film. You know, yeah. he, he kind of connected definitely, definitely. himself through how the penguin was an outsider and he was like this kid that was rejected by his family. And mm-hmm. he was actually like Moses. They put him in a little uh, wicker basket and they sent him down the sewer. Like right. how Moses went down the River Nile. And uh, and talk and about, had, you know, and talk about 25 years early, you have a Me Too moment with Selena Kyle and Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman, you know, standing yeah. at the office, sexual politics and all that. It's ahead of his time stuff, man. You know, it's uh, and like I said, I feel like those things, you know, dated as they kind of can be still hold up thematically for sure. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, it's it's incredible uh, how much uh, the, this 1989 film has created such an influence and we still remember it so well. And Absolutely, it's it's very rewatchable. But yeah. you know, I, I got a, I got a closing question for you. Would you want yeah. to see Michael? Would you want to see Michael Keaton come back at his age and do a Batman Beyond movie as this Bruce Wayne Batman? This is you see those rumors all I, the time. I love I love this question because I've always had a dream for a Batman movie, but I don't mm-hmm. think Warner Brothers would ever make it because you can't make sequels. Uh, yeah. But the the idea was I would love to see a movie directed by Tim Burton because yeah. God knows he needs a winner um, yeah. uh, where it's about Batman in his final years. You yeah. know, you have Batman. He's in his 60s. Alfred has passed on. You know, most of his villains are dead, but he still has Catwoman, you know. Yep. And that'd be we, awesome. 
and we know that she's still out. Especially when you think about Batman Returns, you had that ending shot where the Batman logo uh, flat or the signal goes up on the screen, and Catwoman uh, peeks her head into the frame. Uh-huh. You know, in a way, we kind of follow up with that where. This is about Batman retiring, and here we see an older Batman through Keaton, a Batman that we know, you know, growing up, and we see him hang up the cowl and also not be able to do his job as efficiently, but he has some, you know, some gaps to close. He still has to deal with Catwoman. He still like maybe has, that. yeah, and I don't want any other villain, just just her. Nope, you I know? agree. Yeah, you know. that sounds fucking fantastic. I know people put that Batman Beyond movie as a maybe. I know some people would love to see like a big group movie with like a Kingdom Come Elseworld storyline of an older Batman, but I like the sound of yours where it's just, you know, almost like um almost like Mr. Holmes with an older Ian McKellen trying to kind of hang up the Sherlock Holmes thing, you know, like yeah, just something character driven, simple, you know, old wounds closing, you know, like closure stuff, and and to have a very active and perfectly capable Michelle Pfeiffer go do that at the same time, man, that'd be amazing. Yeah, I'm with you. And oh, with make it happen, Hollywood. And with technology these days. You could pull it off. You can make it believable Easily. that these Easily. guys can still move and all that. I mean, they can make it more agile, and what you can give them the old Batman suit, but probably make it you know mm-hmm. more flexible in a way. Easily, and yeah, I would love to see that. Just he's sitting alone in his cave, and now the isolation of his life really sets in. Oh, he never married. He never had kids. He kept doing this insane job, and it would give some much needed subtext to a Tim Burton movie because one thing Tim Burton's always accused of and honestly rightfully so is that his films are extremely shallow you know it's true uh, like uh, like outside of like maybe Ed Wood I think is maybe his most layered picture and he tried yeah, to recapture that. that with big eyes and maybe another layered one might be Big Fish uh, uh, a little sure yeah still it's kind of yeah but this one would be you get a you get Sam Hamm to come back to write the screenplay, you get Michael Ulison to uh, executive produce it, you know. Uh, I don't know if Roger Pratt's alive anymore, but <laughs> I, I'm not sure either. Yeah, yeah but tough to call. Elfman will still give you a great score. Yeah, uh, oh, uh, it would amazing. be very much in the spirit of '89, and it would be. Uh, it would be, yeah, it would be a wonderful send off to a character where they can kind of do their sort of soft reboot, but it'll only be one film, so they wouldn't want to make it, which is no, thing. make a one off, you know, make, make, yeah. make your Logan, make your Logan, you know, make your, make your send off Ex- film for an older character. Yes, that's how we pitch it. Make it like Logan. And, yep. and Michael Keaton has always said, I would love to return to that role. Oh, I know. And. Ah. I mean, it's just so sad that Michael Keaton, he hasn't worked with Tim Burton for years, and he comes back to do Dumbo? Yeah. Like, really? Yeah. <laughs> but, if that, but if that could be the movie that greases the wheel and reestablishes the relationship, makes something new <laughs> Greases happen, the wheels of the Batmobile, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I would lo- – God, I would love to see that. I I think audiences would pay money to see that too. I think Absolutely. you can get the kids to see it because I think people will be way more excited to see a one-off – with Michael Keaton, kind of like a non-canon slash canon movie where, yeah. uh, you know, 
because people they don't care about the and I'm not knocking this actor. I think he's getting an unnecessary amount of flack, and we're repeating history with the Keaton casting of Keaton and even Heath Ledger before Heath Ledger became right. legendary. But whether uh, casting uh, the, the Twilight guy, I can't remember. Yeah, his Robert name. Pattinson. Yeah, yeah, he'll yeah do Robert just fine. Pattinson. Yeah, he'll be fine. Like I, I'm sure they cast him for a good reason. But you know, people aren't as excited to see a new actor as they are to see an old friend return and to I agree. see. Just something like that, you know, you'll probably agree with us on this. I'm with you, man. Yeah, the hairs, hairs in the back of my neck are standing up at that idea. It's so perfect. We, I love we it. We honestly should start writing it. Like, I'm going to hit you up about that. You're, you're, <laughs> sure. you're watching history in the making, folks. Right, right. screenplay starts today. Yeah. I actually pitched it on Twitter and got quite a few likes when I, uh, I bet wrote you that a while ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyways, having said that, uh, thank you so much for coming on and uh, telling us your your uh, Toy Story uh, horror Ooh. horror tale. Uh, right, right. <laughs> but uh, Don's one of the most amazing critic guys, and he is not an attention grabber. You know, and man, he works hard. I mean, he kind of is Batman in a way. Where during the day he's a preschool teacher, and at night he puts on the cowl and re- you know reviews movies. So. Awesome, man. No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Uh, loving the new site. Loving the new look. Uh, keep the good stuff coming. And uh, if you ever need me again, I'm here, man. Hell yeah, man. Sounds good. All right. So, guys, check out Don's site. Every movie has a lesson. Leave nice comments on there, please. Right. Come on. And- <laughs> clean it up, folks. Jesus. Uh, and uh, I'm Mike from You'll Probably Agree. Uh, my last name doesn't matter. Who cares? Uh, it's Mike Crawley. Uh, and you can check us out at ypareviews.com. Uh, anyways, I'm going to I'm gonna uh, play a little bit of Danny Elfman and <laughs> start dancing into some Batman music. <laughs> Hell yes. Thanks, Mike. Right. See you later, man. Take it easy, bud.